day, and welcome to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, hosted by me, the malevolent Andy Roberts. Tried to do a New Orleans accent there, but I can only do New York properly. Yes, it's another damn episode. I somehow managed to keep cranking them out like a severed head injected with a paralyzing agent could not do. We're on episode 11. I know, it's almost like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. After the debauched disease that was last week's depraved episode, we're now returning to the jazzier tones of the Jallo film. However, due to the last week's intensity of the malady, we've segued into two films that are fairly different despite being Jallo films in style. So after watching them, we'll learn that medical school graduates can't tell the difference between dead and alive, spitefully drowning your brother is justifiable when your mum's cheating on your dad, and said event is more than enough reason to go out of your way to have a unique brand of getting head. It's a pseudo-jallo theme this week on Nasty Pasty, tackling two horrors that are quite different from the usual jallo formula. That's 1971's Short Night of the Glass Dolls by Aldo Lardo, and 1980's Macabre by Lamberto Barber. Both of them have significant deviations from the Jallo formula, but they have enough vestigial touches to make them part of the genre anyway. As we've covered Jallo week last week, we can go straight in and just start with Aldo Lardo's Short Night of the Glass Dolls. On a cold Prague morning, a street sweeper comes across the body of Gregory Moore, an American journalist who, for all intents and purposes, appears to be dead. Rushed off to hospital, he's pronounced dead on arrival by the attending nurse, who's unaware that he's actually still alive, but just unable to move. Frantically attempting to move or signal to the doctors, he's unable to stop being placed inside the cold storage area. In an attempt to stay cogent, Greg tries to remember the events that have led him to this point, 
Several weeks before, he remembers his lover Mira and his promise to help smuggle her out of the country to London, where they'll be free to pursue their life together, free of the opposition of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. Greg takes his girlfriend Mira to a grandiose party, attended by many socialites and government officials of the communist regime. And while Greg is distracted by the advances of his journalist co-worker Jessica, Mira is fawned over by many of the men at the party, seemingly for her beauty. Later that night, Greg returns home to find Mira missing, with none of her possessions or even her clothes being taken along. Joining up with Jessica and and his associate Jacques, Greg begins to investigate the disappearance of similarly naked girls in the city, with one particular blind gentleman mentioning that his lover was forced to serve someone without explaining any further. Commissar Kirchhoff appears to halt Jack Gregg's investigation at every turn and asks that he stop his investigations while a naked female body washes up near the river, but it's not Mira. After a man Gregg is meant to meet is killed by being pushed onto train tracks by a shadowy figure, Gregg soon learns of the Club 99, which he investigates. Seemingly a dead end, an irritated caretaker shooing Gregg away, it's only revealed straight away that Mira's corpse is actually inside a closet wreathed in flowers. In frustration, Greg sleeps with Jessica, who tries to convince him that Mira simply must have ran away, which he refuses to believe, angering her. Jacques is murdered after the blind man reveals to him that the club is more sinister than they think, and Greg is pushed into the river when he tries to find his friend. Kirchhoff accuses Greg in custody of him masterminding the whole thing, and implores him to confess. Almost driven mad by events, he's soon driven home by Professor Carting, who's the owner of Club 99, who advises him just to go to sleep. Waking up in the middle of the night, however, Greg is horrified to discover Mira's corpse stuffed into his refrigerator with a pistol. Considering suicide, he flees when the police arrive at his door, and he heads back to the club, remembering a comment that the murdered man on the train track had mentioned about butterflies. He gains access to the club and is shocked upon discovering a chamber in which all of the club members, including most of the communist socialites from the party, as well as Professor Carting, are holding a bizarre sexual orgiastic rite, with apparently Mira as a sacrifice. Heading to her, he soon finds that she was merely hallucinating, and the bespectacled cult leader explains to him that they are sacrificing young beautiful women to symbolically absorb their vitality and remain in power. Any who bow to their regime are spared and become part of the cult. Anyone who refuses is sacrificed, like Mira. The cult inject Greg with a paralysing agent and soon dump his body where it's found in the morning. Back in the present, Greg's friend Ivan, a medical professional, has exhausted all possibilities of reviving his friend and agrees to have him used in an autopsy class. As the class is about to start, with Jessica watching, Greg begins to regain a slight semblance of feeling and is able to make his hand twitch very slightly. However, to his horror, Greg sees the cult are watching from a balcony above and then notices that the doctor is in fact the cult leader. Clamping down Greg's moving hand, the doctor makes the first incision and performs the autopsy, killing Greg and shocking Jessica as she looks on. That is not sufficient proof. When you say the girl was wearing nothing when she left. And yet I've known it to happen that someone suddenly decides to move out. They leave. There's no warning. And no argument. Let me say this to you. They'd better because I'll write a story. And blast every last one of you for murder. Why did you say murder? 
Aldo Lardo's directorial debut is both a classic giallo and also not. While it does feature the swishy camera techniques, the creepy and affecting soundtrack, gratuitous nudity and the pervasive air of mystery, the film does omit the typical brutal murder sequences and the presence of a maniacal black-gloved slayer. Instead, what we have is more of a thriller-type setup with a political edge to the plot and overall feel of the film. The fact that the film is set in Soviet Czechoslovakia is frighteningly obvious. Apart from the characters mentioning the regime in passing and directly, the film has this oppressive, sombre tone reflected in the overcast weather, the lack of saturated colour, and frequent shots of darkness and shadows. Apart from the journalist characters who appear quite free, the other characters are clearly oppressed and they look quite drab and tired, while the authorities, typified by Commissar Kirchhoff, are cold and demeaning like jailers. Even the supposed opulence of the party that Greg and Mira appear at is muted with the most vibrant colours toned down. The only real burst of colour in the film is in the ending sequence when Greg stumbles upon the cult, with vibrant yellows, golds and floral hues dominating the screen. With the rest of the film looking so dull, it's hard not to notice just how vibrant this final image is, almost as if it's meant to symbolise the vitality that the nefarious cult are trying to harvest. While quite muted in colour, the film is certainly not shot badly, with the cinematography being quite top-notch really, especially in the nighttime sequences shot in Greg's apartment. The clinking madness of the chandelier, with frequent cuts to Greg's eyes, hint at a constantly bubbling insanity just below the surface. Light and dark are also played with constantly, with a particular shot in Club 99 when Greg is hiding in a room with flowers being a stellar moment of lighting falling against the right subject on cue. The editing as well deserves a mention, with frequent cuts between the past and present making for a very disjointed feel, especially as these transitions are accompanied by fleeting images of the cult, flowers and naked women. In a sense, especially towards the latter half of the film, this disjointed uh, method begins to sow seeds of distrust in Greg as a narrator, and it's heavily implied at one point that Greg may in fact be the culprit of all the happenings. This is not true in fact, but the way the sequences are shot does, just, does suggest this quite powerfully. As mentioned before, the film is not particularly brutal or violent, and instead much of the threat is more symbolic. A particular image in the film is one of butterflies, Mira gifts Greg with a gilded display case full of rare specimens of butterfly. One in particular, integral to the cult, is a species which has beautiful wings that are merely vestigial as it cannot fly and only hovers above ground. It's almost an allegory for the characters themselves. They're unable to escape the situation they're in despite their best efforts, and any attempt to break from this is in vain before they even think about it. The fact that the butterfly specimens have been caught and preserved is again almost a metaphor for how the tyranny of the cult seeks to preserve the power, balance of power by capturing beauty. This fatalistic and existential pall is very similar to the writings of Franz Kafka, with Greg being treated like protagonist Joseph K, oppressed by a governing body and told nothing of what's really going on, while being accused by Kirchhoff of the very crime that he's seeking to expose. The resulting madness that Greg suffers is clearly a political statement about the tyranny of the state can make one feel trapped in her own despair, even more so when he's paralysed by the cult and has his wings metaphorically clipped like the butterfly, ensuring that he can't fly above ground and survive to tell the truth of what's really happening. It's particularly interesting that Mira's name, Mira Svoboda, literally means freedom and peace, 
By losing his girlfriend, Greg is losing sight of the freedom and peace that he craves, and the whole film depicts his failure and the loss of the freedom that he dreams about. Short Night of the Glass Dolls, also known as La Corta Notte della Bambola di Vietro, Short Night of the Butterfly, or Paralysed, it was director Aldo Lardo's debut film. The following year, he'd produced another giallo picture, 1972's Who Saw Her Die, which has echoes of Nicholas Roig's later picture Don't Look Now. Two of his other notable pictures include the 1976 video nasty film Late Night Trains, which is also known as Night Train Murders or Last Stop on the Night Train, as well as the sci-fi fantasy film The Humanoid, which starred Barbara Bach, Arthur Kennedy, Ivan Rasimov and Leonard Mann, all of whom had appeared in Italian exploitation films significantly. Much like the subtle nature of his films, though, not too much is actually known about Lardo, except that he lives on today at the age of 82, and he was born in Fiume, which is today a part of Croatia. Leading man Greg was played by French actor Jean Sorel, who had made an appearance in the 1959 film I Spit on Your Grave, which is unrelated to the rape and revenge movie of the same name. He also appeared in the Giallo film Lizard in a Woman's Skin with co-star Florinda Balkan. Uh, Swedish actress Ingrid Thulin played the garishly dressed Jessica, and she'd previously appeared in the proto-Nazi exploitation picture The Damned, and she'd also go on to appear in Tinto Brass's entry in the genre, 1976's Salon Kitty. The role of Jacques was played by veteran actor Mario Adorth, who was born in Zurich, Switzerland, to both Italian and German parents. He'd appeared in a wide array of both German and Italian productions, making a memorable appearance as the grumpy artist character in Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage, as well as the inspector in What Have They Done to Your Daughters. Piero Vida, who played the sinister Commissar Kirchhoff, would go on to have some small roles in the Nazi exploitation film The Night Porter, uh, Dario Argento's Deep Red, as well as, well as Michel Soavi's uh, 1987 slasher Stage Fright. But one of the more recognisable faces in the film, however, is the character of Mira, who's played by American actress Barbara Bach. Frequently understood to be European, Bach was actually born in New York, and she got into the Italian film business due to her husband Augusto Gregorini, who she'd met while modelling, and she married him in 1968. She's most famous for her appearance as a Bond girl in The Spy Who Loved Me as Major Anya Amasova. Her Russian accent in the film, as well as her frequent appearance in Italian films, led to her being misconstrued as a European actress, and she found little success in her native United States as a result. Prior to Short Night of the Glass Dolls, she'd appeared in another Jello film, uh, The Black Belly of the Tarantula, along with two other Bond girls, uh, Claudine Auger, who's from Thunderball, and she was also in Mario Barber's nasty uh, Bloodbath, or Bay of Blood, and also Barbara Boucher from Amok, or, and also the original Casino Royale as Miss Moneypenny. Bach would made further appearances in Italian genre films, like Lardo's later fantasy film, The Humanoid, as well as two of Sergio Martino's jungle romps as well, um, The Isle of the Mutations and The Great Alligator. Barbara also famously married Beatle Ringo Starr in 1981, and she's still married to him to this day. Producer Enzo Doria had made a character appearance in La Dolce Vita, but he mainly produced Italian flicks like Who Saw Her Die, Beyond the Door, and also Tentacles, while Oscar winner Ornio Morricone was frequently known in the giallo world, and also later for his work with Quentin Tarantino. 
Cinematographer Giuseppe Rossellini, he worked on the non-sploitation film The Nun and the Devil in 1973, and the thriller film Hitchhike with David Hess in 1977. He also worked on the film adaptation of Stephen King's novel Firestarter. Now, editor Mario Mora had come into production fresh off the set of Black Belly of the Tarantula, and he went on to star. Uh, well, went on to work on Lardo's later film, The Humanoid, um, the Mondo films, This Violent World and Sweet and Savage, as well as Deodato's pseudo cannibal gore fest, Cut and Run. Now, it only received a very limited release in its native Italy. Short Night Got the Glass Dolls wasn't released to a massive fanfare, unfortunately, and it didn't even receive a theatrical release in either the US or the UK. Even in terms of giallo films and exploitation films, the movie's quite rarely seen and is something of a forgotten gem. It went straight to VHS in the US in a slightly censored form under the title Paralyzed. The few cuts that were made were to the orgy sequence to remove some shots of sexualised nudity, as the MPAA were going for a PG-13 rating on the print. This was really the only way to see the film for anyone outside of mainland Europe, until 2016, when 88 Films released the film uncut. And that was Short Night of the Glass Dolls, and we're going to move straight on to 1980's Macabre by Lamberto Barber. New Orleans housewife Jane Baker is not faithful to her husband Leslie, cheating on him with her lover Fred. She plays around with him in an apartment while her daughter Lucy, completely aware of her mother's infidelity, spitefully drowns her younger brother Michael in a bathtub for no real reason. Upon hearing of her son's demise, a distraught Jane has Fred drive her home, only for the car to crash into a railing and decapitating Fred. Around a year later, after Jane has had psychiatric treatment for her trauma, she moves back into the apartment where she used to make love with Fred, now separated from her husband. The landlord, a young blind man called Robert, is pleased to hear that she's back and offers her company when he can. He begins to get suspicious of her activities when he frequently hears her moaning in pleasure, suggesting that she has a new lover. But Robert Robert never hears any footsteps going up to her room, and more disturbingly, her new lover also appears to be called Fred. Being fond of her himself, Robert makes several attempts to woo her, including inviting her for a drink and offering to make dinner for her. 
Jane becomes ever more secretive, getting angry when Robert allows Lucy to the apartment to give her a present, and she stipulates that no one is to be let upstairs without her. After Jane flirts with him, only to suddenly reject him, Robert sneaks into her room when she's out one time to discover any clues as to who she's having a rendezvous with, and he soon finds a piece of flesh with a ring pierced through it. He also investigates the refrigerator, soon discovering a padlocked compartment. Later that night, he sneaks in while she's moaning in pleasure and checks the refrigerator again, noticing that it's open and empty. Once Jane is done, he checks again and notices to his horror that Fred's severed head lies in the freezer, Jane having made love with it several times. Out of concern, Robert calls Leslie and expresses his concerns. Lucy overhears this and she arrives at the apartment discovering the head herself. Planning a conniving prank, Lucy offers to make Jane and Robert supper that night and drops the piece of flesh with the ring through it into her mother's soup, causing Jane to retch when she sees it. Lucy spitefully follows her up and makes out that Jane will return to the mental institution and reveals that it was her who drowned her younger brother. But in a burst of rage, Jane strangles Lucy and drowns her in the bathtub and also pushes Robert down the stairs, knocking him unconscious. Making love to Fred's head once again, Jane is suddenly disturbed by the reappearance of Robert. They struggle in the kitchen and Jane is burned horrifically on her industrial cooker. Attempting to find Lucy, Robert stumbles into the bedroom and is suddenly killed when Fred's head lurches off the bed and bites him in the neck. So you thought you could get away with it this time too, but you didn't think around me, little Lucy, did you, Mommy dearest? You know I love you, Mommy. Everyone loves you because you're so pretty. You always were the prettiest. You're just trying to poison his mind against her. You're jealous. You want her all for yourself. Look, young man, she's no longer my wife, and I'm not interested. As far as I'm concerned, she doesn't exist. She's dead. Macabre is Lamberto Barber's directorial debut, released in 1980, and supposedly based on an incident in 1965 in which a New Orleans woman kept her husband's severed head in a refrigerator. Whenever a film begins with a notice that it's based on a true event, the frequent horror fan does learn to discount it almost immediately. But after some digging, I can't find any records of such an event occurring in New Orleans in the 60s. But I did find something that may have provided a tangential inspiration. The disappearance of Charles Frederick Rogers happened in June of 1965 in Houston, Texas, and has some very similar details. An unemployed Rogers lived with his parents, Fred and Edwina, and was reportedly very reclusive. On the morning of June 23rd, police forced their way into the home due to unanswered phone calls from Edwina's nephew. Upon entering, the cops found nothing suspicious until they opened the refrigerator, where they discovered the mutilated bodies of Edwina and Fred, with both their severed heads staring out of the vegetable drawer. Charles himself was nowhere to be found, and to this day, no trace of him has been discovered, and he's one of several people who's been declared dead in absentia after disappearing in mysterious circumstances. Apart from the similar name of Fred, the element of the severed heads being stored in the refrigerator is very similar to the plot of Macabre, albeit with a female protagonist. Also released as Frozen Terror, Macabre is a bit of an oddball film, having most of the cinematic and stylistic touches of a giallo, but lacking the most important thing, a killer. 
While there's deaths in the film, the murder is always known to the audience, and there's no mystery regarding the deaths. Instead, this Jallo-esque slow burn focuses on the mystery of what Jane is actually up to, who she making love with, and why she being so secretive. There's certainly some of the cinematic elements, with gliding pans, a focus on darkness and shadows. The blindness of the protagonist is evident in Robert's character, while the women in the film are stereotypically bonkers. Lucy is a sociopathic brat who murders her brother out of spite to get her cheating mother to notice her, and she continues to rub her mother's nose in it in this continuously throughout the film without hardly any show of emotion. Jane, while not faithful to her husband, clearly clings on to the past to the extreme. She continues to have illicit sex with Fred's severed head, and she frequently has moments of delusion. She looks at herself in the mirror and laughs maniacally, while at other times flirting heavily with Robert only to become disinterested seconds later. Unfortunately, Jane is not really as villainous as her daughter. She's simply a damaged soul who feels unrelenting guilt for having, a hus- for having an affair while her son perished. Feeling that she's lost everything she held dear, including her husband and family, she clearly clings on to Fred to regain that semblance of freedom and love that she felt with him. Feeling that she's lost everything she held dear, including her husband and family, she clearly clings on to Fred to regain that semblance of freedom and love that she felt while with him. Lucy is the real antagonist in the film, with seemingly no real motivation for her heinous behaviour, other than she must be mentally ill. Robert's character is interesting in that he clearly pines for Jane and is willing to go to extreme lengths to discover her secret. I mean, sneaking into rooms to pilfer evidence is bold enough for anyone, but a blind person would probably have to be almost crazy to do such a thing with that kind of handicap. As mentioned before, there are deaths in the film, but they're pretty much relegated to the film's beginning and end, and they're moderately grisly in nature. The most squirm-inducing scene, however, is the penultimate moment when we see Jane kissing the severed head, with the putrefying slime and all. Not quite to the level of the German film Necromantic, but still enough to elicit a gag reflex. In addition to the jello feel, it also has a bit of a touch of hagsploitation, or psycho-biddy films, in a similar vein to whatever happened to baby Jane. Jane was clearly happy when Fred was alive, and after she's released from the institution, her latent insanity is only a couple of triggers away from exploding. By the film's conclusion, she's become a cackling murderous hag, knocking Robert down the stairs and locking the doors with a sadistic glee. Apart from these aforementioned moments of action, however, though, the film is a rather sedate slow burn, with a focus on Jane's ever-increasingly bizarre behaviour. It does tie up nicely by the end of it, but the ending lets down the prior proceedings just a little bit. Similar to the slasher film pieces, the twist ending is a bit of an out-of-place supernatural conclusion. Interestingly, though, with an image that Fulci would reuse in the very fun Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. Leading Lady Jane is played by Bernice Steegers, who was a British actress, who went on to star in the Section 3 video Nasty, Extra, in 1982. She was born in Liverpool, and Steegers would later marry Mike Newell, known mainly as a director of films like Four Weddings and a Funeral, of which Steegers had a cameo, The Mona Lisa Smile, and also Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Apart from the aforementioned films, Steegers also has a curious role in the Japanese role-playing video game Final Fantasy XII as Garoon. 
Robert was played by Croatian actor Stanko Molnar, who would later reappear in Lamberto Barva's Jello Shocker, A Blade in the Dark. And despite having such a small part, although it's quite large in other ways, Jane's illicit lover Fred was portrayed by Roberto Possi, who'd had multiple appearances in other Italian films, such as the video nasty The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, uh, Nazi Love Camp 27, and also The Isle of the Mutations by Sergio Martino. Writers Pupi and Antonio Avati worked on the Giallo film House of Laughing Windows, and they'd go on to write the 1983 zombie film Revenge of the Dead. The screenplay was also collaborated on with Roberto Gandas, who and he'd worked on the script to Papaya, Love Goddess of the Cannibals, and he'd go later on to work on the video Nasty Madhouse, as well as Lamberto Barva's personal project, the Brevido Giallo TV film series. Ubaldo Continiello was the composer of the film's soundtrack, and he also did the seminal tunes in Diodato's Last Cannibal World, which became a Section 3 nasty, as well as a Polizio Tesci film, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. The cinematography was helmed by Franco Deli Colli, who'd already done Jallos with What Have They Done to Your Daughters and Strip Nude for Your Killer, but he'd go on to some other nasty films of the 80s like Revenge of the Dead and also Rat's Night of Terror. The film's limited but effective special effects were done by two people. Angelo Mattei, who'd also worked on Barva's Demons and the Brevido Giallo series, uh, Fulci's Touch of Death and also A Mock Train, which was also known as uh, Beyond the Door 3. But the other chap was Antonio Corridori, and he went on to much wider acclaim by working on such films like U571, uh, the 2003 remake of The Italian Job, uh, Mission Impossible 3, and also Zoolander 2. He also did work, however, on some Italian films, like Phenomena, uh, Piranha 2 The Spawning, and Luigi Cozzi's Black Cat, which is sometimes released as Demons 6. The film had just a very small th- release theatrically in Italy in 1980, but it was released subsequently on video the same year in the UK by Go Video. Very similarly, though, to Terror Express from last week, Macabre is one of the few non-nasty films to have been confirmed as being seized by the police during the infamous raids. Not only was this probably due to the distributor Go Video, who had irked the authorities with Cannibal Holocaust and SS Experiment Camp, but the cover artwork. The DPP considered the cover artwork a credulous threat if it was too explicit, the fear being that the general public would imitate the image seen on the cover. The Go Video version of Macabre depicted Fred's severed head in the fridge, while Jane, blouse wide open, screams nearby. The image image alone would have been enough to warrant attention from the police, and the film was confiscated quite often. The film became unavailable until 1987, when an uncut VHS version was released again. Now, modern DVD and Blu-ray editions exist in various forms and qualities.
And that was Macabre, and it was the end of the show for this week, guys and gals. So thanks ever so much for listening to me drone on. I know it's a slog. But if you do have any feedback for the films this week, or the ones coming up, please do get in touch. I need a sign that other people are watching stuff. I feel like it's only me that watches this trash. Just joking, of course. But please do send in any feedback in either audio or written form uh, to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet me on nastypastypod. Or you can send us a message on Facebook. Next week, we're carrying on with our sort of mini pseudo-series. And we're focusing on two pseudo-cannibal films. Now, these are Jess Franco's Diamonds of Kilimanjaro and Ruggiero Diodato's Cut and Run. Both are set in the jungle, and both feature natives, but these cannibal films, in spirit, lack the actual cannibalism and the animal violence, but they nonetheless have the same atmosphere, the same sweltering locations, and brutal violence and nudity. So do join us next week on the Nasty Pasty Podcast, but for now, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Adios, amigos! Adios, amigos!